This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's scripture passage comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their, by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Amen. Amen. You know, I had the privilege of uh, doing premarital counseling with you know, many young couples, sometimes older couples. It's always a joy because you get to know their story, uh, you get to know uh, their relationship, and you get to know them as people, their values. And you know, one of the big things that we talk about in uh, premarital is conflict resolution, um, that you have to figure out you know, how to do that. And every once in a while, when, I, when we get to that, you know, the couple looks at each other and they think, do, do we have conflicts? And then they think about it, and then they respond, you know, Pastor, we don't really have too many conflicts. You know, when I hear that, there's two thoughts in my mind. One, you're lying. Or two, uh, you have yet to really get to know one another. Because what conflicts are within a relationship, it's two people, two different people, getting to know one another. That's essentially what it is. And so as two people who are different get to know one another, there are challenges, difference of opinions, different, of, uh, different uh, values of how you want to live and how you want to spend your money, all of this. And what happens is it's a growing pains of a relationship that in those beginning years, dating years, engagement years, the early years of marriage, there's a lot of things you're trying to figure out, and it's actually through conflict, through healthy conflict and discussion, it's actually through that that you learn to figure out what relationship is. And that's a real relationship. It's a real relationship is not one without conflict. It is one that's authentic and honest, humble, gentle, but yet with conflict. In this passage that uh, we just read, it's the conflict. It's the conflict that might have even reverberated throughout the church because the two that are in conflict are, are the two leading apostles of Christianity. It's the ones who, who make up in their writing, at least with Paul, a, a, a large chunk of the New Testament. Uh, the book of Acts can literally be divided, half of it, of Peter, and the other half of Paul. And what we see here is a real faith. If you were to make it up, these things would not be included. If you were to make up how a faith grew, 
It would be easy. It would be one without conflict. It would be peaceful, full of miracles. And through the book of Acts, yes, you see God working in miraculous ways, but because he's working with fallen humanity, you have these moments like this. This is the growing pains of Christianity. And as the gospel is being understood, they're trying to figure out what does this look like. And in here, we're brought into HD quality conflict. And we are then asked, how does this impact us? You see in this passage, what you see is not just that the gospel is important and that you must believe the gospel that you must preach even to yourself a a real and healthy gospel, what you learn in this passage is that without even realizing it, you could start to walk away from the gospel. And that's what happens to Peter, the pillar of the church. He starts to unknowingly walk away from the gospel. And so what does Paul do? He confronts him. He's confronted by the gospel. So in verse 11, it says, But when Cephas, also known as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Not by him, but this is in relation to the Lord. He opposes Paul to his face because what he was doing is worthy of condemnation. And what's, uh, where we are at in this, in this letter of Galatians, it's he's going through, Paul's going through his testimony because he's trying to prove to uh, the people in Galatia as the Judaizers are trying to uh, preach a false gospel, Jesus plus something, that's how you are saved. He's trying to prove to these, the Galatian church that, he, that his life, that his testimony is worthy because of what God has done and therefore his gospel is worthy to be heard. And so he's going through this. So, so, so far he's shared about that he's a persecutor of the church and then from there how he, by God's grace, com- completely turned him 180 degrees And this persecutor became a preacher. And so even in the chapter before, he talks about how the people were praising God because of this miracle. And just in the passage before, after many years, Paul finally meets the Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, and gives him the right hand of fellowship, fellowship, saying, you and your gospel, yes, we affirm it. And there's no strings attached. They don't try to change his gospel in any way. All this is validating Paul's gospel. But then, in this passage, the very apostles that validate his gospel, he now is confronting. So you don't make this stuff up. This is what actually happened in the church And so in verse 12, what we see is that they have now moved from Jerusalem. They're now in Antioch. They were in agreement in Jerusalem of what the gospel was. In Antioch, there's now a difference. Why? What's happened? What's the difference? They were in a Jewish setting, and now they're doing ministry in a Gentile setting. So now the culture 
is something that they have to deal with. So in verse 12, this is what's happening. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when, he came, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, when Peter visited Antioch, he was glad. He ate with these new believers who were not Jewish, who were Gentiles. And he ate with them. He ate with them in such a way that it was probably habitual regularly. So people knew Apostle Peter is eating with the Gentiles. This is something that was new. This didn't happen before. The Israelite people were always a Jewish people. So as Jesus has ascended, gives them the Holy Spirit, gives them the command, go out to all the, uh, to the ends of the earth, making disciples. For Peter, he is glad, because this is actually happening. Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come, and now he's starting to, little by little, see the ends of the earth being reached. And in Acts 10, there was a critical moment where for, 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 for Peter, he sees a vision of these unclean animals. And God tells him to, that these, this is now clean in reference to the Gentiles. So God speaks to Peter saying, go. He can speak. He can do missions. And so Cornelius, who is not Jewish, it's, in that, it's in, in, in that setting, the Holy Spirit falls and there's confirmation, supernatural, spiritual confirmation that God's blessing is not just for Israel, to the ends of the earth. And so Peter is elated. He's eating, celebrating, probably hearing the stories of how they came to faith. And every person that he hears, it's a different story. It's, it's different than the Jewish boy who grew up in the temple learning of the Torah. It's a Gentile boy who never heard of Jesus. It's a Gentile boy who didn't understand. It's these people that grew up and then the gospel is finally reached. He is elated. He is celebrating. He is eating. And then James's boys. Now, we don't know if this is... Um, people who actually represented James. But regardless, these people come, and they're not happy. They see Peter eating and dining with these Gentiles, and they are furious, to the point where Peter starts to back away from the Gentile people. And this is the issue. He separates himself from the community. And this was the problem. The Jews from Jerusalem, what they were saying, and you've heard this so far in the past weeks, these Gentiles, they need to get circumcised. They need to follow the, the dietary laws. They need to follow the ceremonial laws. It's Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus came. Wonderful. Now you must do these things as well so that you can be accepted. Until you do that, you must eat separately. For, these, for, the, for, the, for the Jews who had come, they did not feel comfortable eating with them. For their food was unclean. To, to, to do life with them meant that, that they would be ceremonially unclean. And so what you see is in Jerusalem, they were all in agreement. 
giving them the right hand of fellowship. Yes, we agree, you're saved by grace alone. And then going out into this Gentile region, it becomes real life. What do you do? What do you do when, when uh, there is a misunderstanding? You see, it wasn't racial issues, it wasn't about cliques. This was a gospel issue. And so in verse 14, that's the indictment. Right, do you see? But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, it's not that Peter stopped believing the gospel, it's not that Peter preached a different gospel, it's that his life, the way that he was acting and living, was not in step, in line with the gospel in such a way that as he did this, Barnabas was led astray. Others were led astray. Preaching the same thing, believing the same thing, but by their living, we're saying you are lesser than. You cannot eat with us. And so when Paul hears this, he is angry. But notice how many eyes it passes through, how many people it passes through before someone realizes it. Peter didn't see it. Barnabas didn't see it. Those others who were led astray didn't see it. Nobody saw it. But when Peter sees it or hears about it, he is enraged. And so, and so, and so, and so Paul is enraged. And so Paul confronts. And what this shows all of us is that, yes, we are saved by believing. But even after being saved, we need to be confronted with the gospel over and over and over. You need to be told repeatedly over and over and over that you are loved, not because of what you have done. You have to be told over and over and over. It's by Christ and what he has done that you are accepted. And you have to be told this over and over. Peter knew this, preached it, but was living differently. And so what does Paul do? He doesn't confront Paul. He doesn't conf Paul doesn't confront Peter with the law. He confronts Peter with the gospel. You see, to be confronted with the law is something that's very common to us. It's something that we tell ourselves over and over and over, isn't it? Oh, what's wrong with me? Why did I do that thing again? I need to be better. Right? We confront ourselves with the law all the time. Right? You think about the maybe the Ten Commandments. Oh yeah, I should honor my parents. Yeah, I know I shouldn't lie. I know I shouldn't covet. Right? So we tell ourselves and we confront ourselves with the law. And what Paul does here is not confront him with the law. He confronts him with the gospel. What does it mean to be confronted by the gospel? It's to be preached. To be preached the gospel to be moved by the gospel. It's to live your life in response to the gospel, that everything you do, your thoughts, your heart, your actions, everything is a response to the gospel. It's not simply about what you do, it's even about why you do something. The gospel, as you follow it, walk in it, you're supposed to walk in line with it. This is how J.I. Packer says it, it's a great quote that we use at uh, Gospel City 101 when we talk about gospel-centered living. You see, the secular world never understands Christian motivation. And that's an insight 
worth a lot. The secular world never understands Christian motivation. Faced with the question of what makes Christians tick, unbelievers maintain that Christianity is practiced only out of self-serving purposes. They see Christians as fearing the consequences of not being Christian, religion as fire insurance, or feeling the need of help and support to achieve their goals, religion as a crutch, or wishing to maintain social identity, religion as a badge or respectability. This was written at a different time, by the way. No doubt, all these motivations can be found among the membership of churches. It would be futile to dispute that. But just as a horse brought into a house is not thereby made human, so a self-serving motivation brought into the church is not thereby made Christian. Nor will holiness, listen to these words, nor will holiness ever be the right name for religious routines thus motivated. From the plan of salvation, I learned that the true driving force in authentic Christian living is and ever must be not the hope of gain, but the heart of gratitude. And you will, if you ever read Paul's letters over and over and over and just see how he reasons and argues with the people, it's always going to go back to the gospel, who you are in Christ, what he has done. And so for us, the challenge is not to confront yourself, confront yourself simply with the law, but it is to confront yourself with the gospel. You see, we have a tendency to walk away from the gospel of grace. This is our tendency. We do this all the time. And not for illicit pleasures, per se. We have a tendency to walk away from the gospel and to jump on to the staircase of legalism. This is something that we'll naturally slowly do. So if you preach the gospel, confront yourself with the gospel over and over and over. And as you are confronted by the gospel, those who know their hearts, when you know your hearts, you know you need it. This is actually one of the ways in which you know that you're getting the gospel. Right? How do you know if you're actually getting the gospel? One of the ways that you actually know that you're getting the gospel is you know you need, you need to hear it regularly. Every time you hear it, you're saying, yes, tell me again. Tell me again. Tell me again. I continue to forget who I am. So I, 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 I pursue and I try to attain my worth and all these other things. Tell me again and again, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Kathy Keller, uh, Tim Keller's wife, uh, the way in which she talks about, you know, his or her, her husband's sermons, she talks about it like this. His earlier parts, it's a, it's a good lecture. It's like a, it's like a good Sunday school lecture. But the moment when he gets to Christ, it becomes a sermon. Everything else is, yeah, I should, I should learn these things, yes. But once he gets to Christ, it's like, yeah, tell me again. Who is he? Tell me again. For, for, for her, Kathy Keller, Christ is the motivation, is the reason. Everything else of why, of what we do, has to be fueled by who, why we do it. See, a person who knows their own hearts, if you know your hearts, what you will find as, you, as the years you know, go past, it's not telling yourself, do better and be better. Come on, what's wrong with you? Why do I, why do, I do that again? It's when you do those things, you have to tell yourself, who am I? What am I searching for? 
the way in which uh, this, this hymn of old, the way that he, this person says it, Robert Robinson, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be, let thy goodness like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. He knew to the wayward heart, to the wayward soul, the way that you stay in line is not by telling yourself and confronting yourself with the law. It's to bind your heart because of his goodness. Every time the preacher gets to the point of Christ, what you're saying is, oh, there he goes again, talking about Jesus. Yeah, 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 I get that. No, no, it's not that. It's tell me again. Tell me again. Tell me again of his beauty. Tell me again of his sacrifice. Tell me again of his love. Tell me again. My heart needs to know because my heart's prone to wander to all these other things that always fail me. And so what what Paul does to Peter is not condemn him with the law. What is wrong with you? You're an apostle. I was like, no, don't you know the gospel? Stay in line with the gospel. You've taken it, you've taken, you've, you've strayed away. And so he continues on, right? And, and now he talks about walking in the gospel. He confronts him in the gospel, and then he, he clarifies. So let's go into that verse, verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, uh, how, when, when, when Peter was, was, was taking himself out of that community, what, what Paul calls this is not walking in the gospel. And that idea, not in step with the gospel, it's where the word ortho comes, like orthodox. Ortho is straight. So orthodox is, 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 is a straight opinion. And so that, therefore, it's, it's the standard. Uh, for example, like orthodontist, right, is, is someone who straightens your teeth. What, what Paul is saying here is, that you are not ortho walking. You're not walking straight in the gospel. He was, but he started looking at something else. As he started looking at something else, he started veering, not intentionally, but slowly, out of fear, out of fear of the circumcision party, he started veering. You see, the Christian must not just believe in the gospel, you have to learn to walk in it. It's not an easy thing to do. I would say it's even a discipline, learning to walk in the gospel. So often we think that Christianity and, and, and the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z. It's, a, it's all of life, learning the gospel and learning to walk in the gospel. You see, when you know the background, background a little bit more, it gets even more complex. So let me just get into that and, and put your thinking caps on because as you hear it, you're going to recognize this will impact you. And you've tasted this a little bit. If you grew up in the U.S. and you, you did Christianity there, and you came to Korea, and if you've if, if you ever been to a Korean church, you're going to start to recognize, oh, my Christianity is a little bit different than Korean Christianity. Right? You're going to start to feel, even within here, different places that you're from, that you've experienced Christianity differently. So the ways in which you think about money, music, alcohol. What you will find is that different people have different views. And so how, I, want to, I want you to understand how complex it was for them. So for them, Paul and the apostles, they had agreed that Gentile believers don't need to be circumcised. Tracking with me? The Gentile believers 
non-Jews, when you come to faith, they had agreed in Jerusalem, yes, they don't have to be circumcised. You get it? I get it. Got it? Got it. What that also then meant, though, was that it did not prevent Jewish believers to continue to observe the Mosaic ceremonial law. And so if you are a Jew and you wanted to continue to live in that way, they they weren't condemned not to. They were saying, well, this is the way that you grew up. You knew your right and wrong from the Mosaic law. And, And so therefore, even the ceremonial law had a lot of meaning for them, emotional meaning. And Paul and God, knowing that we're emotional beings, knowing that we shouldn't go against your conscience. And so what they had agreed upon is that Gentile believers don't need to get circumcised. But also what they said is that those who are Jewish, if they wanted to continue, they're allowed to. They didn't say you have to stop. So now, as they've moved on from Jerusalem to Antioch, And as as Paul, who knew that they were accepted, that Gentiles were accepted, as he was eating, these other people came and said, no, you can't do that, because by doing that, you're getting getting messy with the the ceremonial laws. And so in this, we have what what we can probably consider the first clash of Christian cultures. And so what do you do? They didn't understand the implications of what they had decided in Jerusalem. But in real life, Peter, one of the pillars of the faith, messed it up. He faltered. And so Paul, when he sees this, he's trying to correct it. And so what he talks about in this is that as you take your faith and as you try to live out your faith, what you don't want to do is take the secondary issues and then make them primary. And so I want to jump into Romans 14 for just a moment. And it's going to help you understand this. Romans 14 is going to be up there. Romans 14 and 15, Paul is now elaborating on this idea of culture, idea of values, and how there are gray areas. There are parts of life that Scripture does not clearly define of how you should live. So Romans 14 and 15, a lot of it is about what you eat and what day you worship things that were very common for them. And so in verse 1 it says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And what he is saying is that there are areas in which the Bible has not clearly defined. So he says that these are opinions, so don't quarrel over them. Later on, he actually talks about even more, have an opinion, learn the faith, learn to understand the scriptures, and have an opinion, and be firm in that. But in that, he also says, welcome him, but not quarrel over opinions. And in verse 3, again, it says, God has welcomed him. Paul is saying that you can disagree on secondary issues. What you eat, what day of the week, what day of the week to worship, and in the areas in which the Bible doesn't give guidance, there is a gray, and you can 
agree to disagree. And so for us, it's music. For us, it's dating. How do you get married? For us, it could be alcohol. It could be a bunch of other taboo subjects. And what you recognize is every culture and country, but also generationally, has their own understanding of what's wrong. And so even back a couple, couple centuries ago, someone like Spurgeon, that you all know of, loved to smoke cigars. And so if you imagine, if you come from a, a, a culture where smoking is absolutely wrong, then what do you make of Spurgeon? In Korea, it's been commonly understood that drinking is bad. And when you understand the culture, you understand why, because of the abuse of alcohol. But it's in this what you recognize that the secondary issues must maintain and be secondary. So what was happening in Antioch is that the secondary issues became primary issues. So in verse 13, what Paul says is, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. You say one thing, but you're living a different way. That you're saved by grace, but the way in which you're living how you're not having fellowship with, an, with another. You're not telling them that they are lesser than. And so in, in verse 14, he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? When you think about the logical outcome of this, two separate meals, you know what that would have meant? Eventually, the Lord's Supper would have been done separately as well. You know what that, what that would have meant later on? And two separate congregations in the same area. And one group is judging the other, thinking we're better than you. What does that do to the other group? They're going to start to feel lesser than. It's what we've been talking about throughout the past weeks. The almost gospel. The almost gospel is Jesus plus works equals salvation. And so Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus this way of dating, Jesus plus no alcohol, or Jesus plus alcohol, whatever you want to say, all of it, when you, when you start to define the secondary thing as something so primary that you start to judge other Christians because of your outlook, then you're adding to the gospel. That's why we are judgmental. What does that do? In reality, it's not salvation, it's slavery. That's why you end up judging somebody. You don't want to, but you can't help it because you've now written the law into the gospel, and now you say the gospel is Jesus plus this way of life. What is that? Slavery. You end up judging. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. The way in which Paul received the gospel was all by grace, and he knows that. And so as he sees others, it's all grace. For Peter, he did grow up Jewish. So he was wrestling with what is the gospel? What does it mean to live a holy life? And so he got it mixed up. And then by the grace of God, it's Paul that reveals to him the gospel. And so lastly, I want to finish with then, not just living in the gospel, in the gospel way, but now compelled by the gospel. You see in verse 14, What's he compelled by? Peter is compelled by, he separates himself from the community because he's compelled by fear. Fear of the circumcision party. Have you ever 
struggled with fear, someone's approval, and therefore did things that you shouldn't have done because of that person's opinion, what you've done is Jesus plus that person's approval is salvation. It's another almost gospel. So that's what Paul, that's what Peter was doing. He was now redefining the gospel in his heart. What did that end up being? Slavery. He even brought Barnabas and others out. So Paul doesn't refer to the law. He doesn't say, you better love. You're you're loving wrong. He says he goes back to the gospel. Your conduct is not in step with the truth. And preaches the gospel again. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. What's he reminding him of? His identity. Peter, remember. Remember all that you've done. The three times you've denied Christ. What did he do? Did he not show, show up on the shore? And didn't you see him? And you jumped into the water because you're so grateful? What does Jesus do to you? He asks you three times, do you love me? What's he doing? Restoring you. Not because of what he's done, but because of grace. He's reminding Peter, you are saved by grace. Now treat these Gentile believers in the same way with grace. Christianity, what you're motivated by matters. If you're motivated by holiness, and that's a primary motivation, someone like Parker would say, that's the wrong motivation. Yes, you should want to desire to become holy, yes. But the Christian's motivation is with gratitude, knowing what he has done. Uh, Brennan Manning, shares a story of an Irish priest who is walking in this uh, rural parish, sees an old person praying on the side. Impressed, the priest says to the man, you must be very close to God. The person looks up from his praying, thinks for a moment, and then smiles. Yes, he's very fond of me. It's not what you would expect to hear. Oh, you must be so close to God. And for us, we might respond, yeah, I do all these things. Because I am so disciplined, I pray. And for this man, it's, oh, you must be so close to God. He thinks about it. Yeah, God loves me. Because God loves me, I'll pray. What's your motivation for all of it? Paul will challenge you and invite you. Live in the gospel. Don't confront yourself with law, continue to confront yourself with the gospel. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.